text this morning is the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. While you're turning that up, I should say, um, when I came to the pastorate of this church in May of 1978, the three elders of the congregation were Joe Gronwald, Harry DeSoto, and Ken Anderson. Ken, of course, is now with the Lord. But last week, uh, in my recollection, was the first time those other two men, Joe and Harry, had been in the hospital at the same time. We were able to make a single trip to the hospital and call on both of them, just moving floors. And uh, the Lord has given uh, good health to them in general, and we're grateful for that. They have served this congregation very well. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. You may be aware that um, that has provoked an enormous amount of uh, historical research and investigation. The fact that there was a first census suggests that um, the census referred to in Luke chapter 5 also taken place uh, or takes, that they took place under the uh, rule of Quirinius, the governor of Syria, uh, was not the first census. There was another one in some way, but uh, no one has been able to come up with any document that identifies that census. That's not altogether that surprising. We only know a comparatively little bit about what happened in those days and years. Nevertheless, um, we have this tantalizing indication of history that we are otherwise unaware of. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, Luke never actually says in this passage that any Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. We have been reading in Matthew, and we are accustomed to Matthew reminding us over and over and over again that something happened in order to fulfill this particular prophecy or that particular prophecy concerning the Messiah. Luke does not write his gospel that way. Just as Malachi 3 and 4 lay behind Gabriel's message to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 7 lay behind his message to Mary, also reported in Luke chapter 1, without Luke saying so in either case. So Micah chapter 5 verses 2 through 5 lie unmistakably beneath the history that Luke is reporting here. And it's all the more effective for Luke's understatement of that fact. You Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you shall come a ruler whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, and so on. Events conspire to ensure that the birth will occur in Bethlehem. Even a pagan emperor's need for revenue contributes to the unfolding of God's salvation. And in Bethlehem, a mother gives birth to a prince of ancient lineage who will shepherd the scattered flock of Israel and extend his authority to the ends of the earth proclaiming peace. That pretty well wraps up Micah's uh, prediction in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And of course, that cryptic way of describing the situation um, is possible because of the 
explanation given at length in chapter 1 about uh, the virgin birth. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The Christmas manger scenes, popularized by Francis of Assisi, have settled the picture in our minds. We always put animals in the scene, not because the Bible anywhere says that there were animals there, but on the assumption that a manger would imply domestic animals. You'll notice that Luke does not tell us precisely where Jesus was born. He only says what Mary did with her baby after he was born. Ancient tradition had it that the Lord was born in a cave, and over such a cave in Bethlehem, a Christian basilica uh, is located still today. The church father Origen, who frequently lived in Palestine in the early years of the third century, wrote, if anyone wants further proof to convince him that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he may observe that in agreement with the story in the gospel about Jesus' birth, the cave at Bethlehem is shown where he was born and the manger in the cave where he was wrapped in strips of cloth. Luke, you'll notice, along with the rest of the gospel writers, not only at this particular point in the history of the Lord's life and ministry, but at every point, shows no interest in preserving the precise location of the site or uh, any of those uh, uh, sort of incidental details that came to fascinate people after the fact. Uh, the traditions that uh, grew up about this cave in Bethlehem and so on go beyond what anyone knows for sure. Jerome, you may remember, the great uh, church father and scholar, lived and worked for some years in Bethlehem in a cave. By then it was a monastery that was immediately adjacent to the one that tradition fixed as the birthplace of the Lord. We just don't know. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The fields that are today identified as the shepherds' fields are some two miles from Bethlehem toward the Dead Sea and below the snow line. And uh, we can imagine uh, a young David centuries before, walking over those same fields, he must have, tending to his father's flocks, fighting off uh, lion and bear, utterly unaware of what would someday transpire on those very same hillsides. Once again, the text does not say that Jesus was born at night. Uh, the thought is taken over from the time of the appearance of the angels to the shepherds, which could have been a few hours, for that matter, a few days after Jesus was born. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying. Now the Greek verbs in Revelation chapter 5, used to describe the singing of the angels, suggests that uh, we should in all probability render saying here as singing. It is the word for say, but we learn elsewhere in biblical texts that in um, 
in reference to songs, and this is a song, it is a poem, it's a psalm, um, the words say often should be translated, sing. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has, been, that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Well, there's no appearance by the Lord, but the shepherds knew the significance of words spoken by angels. They realized that God had spoken. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon this so familiar text that it may bring new and old truth uh, to our hearts and bringing that truth to our hearts, renew our lives in faith and hope and love, bring salvation anew and afresh to we, uh, to us needy sinners who whose sin and guilt was the reason for the coming into the world of the Son of God. Speak to us and to our hearts of His salvation and strengthen. And if it does not yet exist, grant the faith in Him that such a message absolutely requires. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a lesson that young preachers have to learn and that wise preachers often teach. Sermons should be composed and then they should be preached as if the preacher is sure that he has unbelievers in the audience before him. He should choose his words and form his arguments with the unbeliever's mind and heart in view. He should construct the argument so as to attempt to win over the skeptic, not simply to assure those who are already convinced. There are several reasons why this is good advice. First, there often are unbelievers present, even if they are not always known to be unbelievers or identify themselves as unbelievers. The preacher is much more likely to reach them and win them if he is trying to. Second, many Christian believers will understand the argument better and will be helped by it more if it is put in terms that make sense to an unbeliever. Simple, direct, requiring no previous knowledge, no acquaintance with technical religious vocabulary, and so on. Third, in this way, Believers learn to make the case for their faith in ways that are helpful to unbelievers. Christians do not always know how to do this. Their manner often gets in the way of their message. The way they hear the gospel preached, preached should help them to learn how to declare it themselves. 
There are other reasons as well, but it is a long accepted principle of good preaching that the argument of the sermon should be constructed with a view to unbelievers present. Even when the subject concerns Christians and Christians only, say, how to live the Christian life, it will be more effectively taught, more clearly taught, if the preacher imagines that unbelievers, non-Christians, will be listening in. And if that is true in general, how much more at Christmas when believers and unbelievers share the holiday but have such vastly different ideas as to its meaning. Surely it's wise and right to preach about Christmas as if unbelievers were present and sometimes even to set before us the meaning of this history as if all of us were hearing it for the very first time. Perhaps especially at Christmas, the sermon is to be preached not only with a view to just any unbeliever, but to the most skeptical, the most hostile of unbelievers. We all know that Christmas has become much more controversial recently. People my age grew up in an America in which Christmas was not controversial in the way in which it has become controversial recently. In our postmodern relativist age, a certain kind of tolerance has quite recently become almost the supreme public virtue. Consequently, it is thought wise in some quarters that public life be largely stripped of any religious sentiment so as not to offend those who do not share those sentiments. Whether that is in fact a wise policy, whether it is possible to practice it consistently, whether it will lead to less hostility or more. These are not the questions I want to consider this morning. The fact is, many policy shapers think that way in our increasingly secular culture. The result is, as we know, that manger scenes have been stripped from uh, countless city parks and the Boeing Company, for example, now no longer has Christmas parties for its workers. Boeing workers gather instead to celebrate the winter solstice. In France, a more defiantly secular culture than the United States, it was thought that tensions would be eased in the country by refusing to allow religious symbols to be worn at school. Muslim girls in particular were forbidden to wear their headscarves. As it turns out, the French just discovered a few days ago that this also meant that the gaily wrapped gifts of chocolates that had for years been sent by the city council to the school children in French villages had to be sent back. The chocolate traditionally came in the shape of Christian crosses or St. Nicholas, and so being religious symbols, they were now illegal for schools to give to children. As more than one person has pointed out, the problem is created by the fact that Christmas is virtually everyone's favorite holiday. Auguste Comte, the French thinker and father of modern humanism, expressed the hope that humanist secular feasts would be invented to replace the old religious ones that he was sure would disappear in a humanist age. But still today, nobody exchanges gifts on Darwin Day or decorates his home for Labor Union Day all celebrate Christmas as they always have. It's the church's great gift to the world, the season of joy that nothing else can replace 
And in fact, nothing else does replace anywhere in the world. There is nothing like Christmas. But Christmas is unabashedly a Christian holiday. It is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, whom Christians believe is the Savior of the world. And so we accept that there is a controversy here. The Christmas history does and must divide the world between those who believe it and those who do not. For years, the effort was made in American popular culture to diminish the controversial aspect of Christmas. Its message was made more bland, more homogenous, altogether less distinctively Christian. And that effort, in an odd way, was aided by the translation of Luke chapter 2, verse 14 in the King James Bible. There, generations of Christians had read that the angels, in announcing the birth of the Messiah, said to the shepherds, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was that translation that Handel took up into his Messiah, and that was repeated in countless Christmas carols. Well, there's nothing controversial about singing or saying peace on earth, goodwill to men. Anyone and everyone can say that. You don't have to be religious to say that. Even if it were taken, as it sometimes was, following the translation in the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, to mean peace on earth to men of goodwill, there was again nothing distinctively Christian in that encapsulated summary of the Christian message. Everyone feels that men of goodwill, of all men, should be and will be blessed with a greater measure of peace. But no modern translation reads the text that way. That's not what the angels said to the shepherds. What they said was, as our NIV, New International Version, has it, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. The Revised Standard Version and the English Standard Version, based upon it, perhaps the two most authoritative modern translations of the Bible, read the text this way, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. There's little to no dispute as to the proper translation of the text. I won't bore you with questions of Greek grammar, but that's what the words mean, and everyone admits that this is what the words mean. Glory is in the Bible the brightness, the brilliant light that time and again in the history of salvation indicated the presence of God in His majesty. The shepherds did not see God, but they did see, as we read in uh, verse 9, the glory of the Lord shining around them as the angels appear. This brilliance, this light. Glory is, in the Bible, in other words, a visible manifestation of the character and the nature of the invisible God. So to say glory to God means in such a context, let the majesty of God be recognized and acknowledged. It's another way a longer way of saying praise God. And it is an invitation to angels and to men to join in praising God. And for what are men and angels to praise Him? Because of the coming into the world of His Son. And why should this be cause for us to acknowledge God in His majesty 
His holiness, His grace and mercy and goodness, because it is a demonstration of the favor He is in this way bestowing on men and women, boys and girls. Christ came into the world, Gabriel said beforehand to Joseph, to save his people from their sins. And here the angels say to the shepherds that a Savior is born to you. He brings salvation, which is to say he brings eternal life into the world. As Paul would later sum up the entire Christian message, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He makes it possible for men to be at peace with God when their sins and their sinfulness, as the prophet Isaiah put it, separated them from God. Jesus is the answer to this alienation from God that uh, every human life suffers from naturally. Through Him, we who were far away, Paul says, have been brought near to God. But does this peace, this reconciliation to God, this salvation, this eternal life, come to everyone indiscriminately? Is it a gift that will be given to each and every human being no matter what? No, the angels say. It is a gift to those and for those upon whom God's favor rests. It comes to those with whom God is pleased. And here's the rub. Here's why Christmas will always have this controversial element in it. Why it will always be a powerful idea that has disturbing and unsettling consequences in the world. Here is why unbelievers will always try to domesticate Christmas. Take the teeth out of it. Make it something harmless, even banal. For Christmas divides human beings. It cannot help but divide them. Modern secularists are right about this. It divides them. It must divide them into those who have God's favor and those who do not have it. Those who receive this great favor from God and those who do not. And Christians are absolutely willing to admit and acknowledge this. It is, after all, not only at the Christmas history that we encounter these implications. At every point in the history of Jesus Christ, we find the same thing. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot get to God, Jesus says, except through me. Some believed that and some did not. That is the wonderful and terrible truth and consequence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ's visitation of this world. It's a wonder beyond the power of words to express that unworthy human beings Selfish and small and petty, corrupt, impure human beings like you and me can go to heaven to live forever in fellowship with God and with a vast community of human beings who by God's grace have become all that human beings should become and could become. We will live there forever and ever. There's a joy set before us that takes the breath away, a joy that we don't deserve, that is solely the achievement and the gift 
of this Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem. But it remains true, as it has been true from the very beginning, that though this feast is spread and an invitation is issued to all, there are a great many who would rather starve than come. And that is the fact of Christmas, as it is the fact of the remainder of the Lord's life and ministry, and the fact of the proclamation of the message about Him in the world ever since. It is life and peace and joy to multitudes. And it is a matter of boredom or indifference or the gnashing of teeth to many, many others. Christians accept this fact. It is the burden of the truth. It is fundamental to our understanding of the world and of what is happening in the world. There are those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those who do not. But we cannot help confessing Him, Lord. We know that He is. We are as sure that the angels actually appeared to those shepherds and addressed them with these words that night outside of Bethlehem as we are sure of our own existence. In the same way, we are as sure that some 30 years later, Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear in our place the punishment our sins deserved, and that on the third day He rose again from the dead, and someday will come again to judge the living and the dead. I say we are as sure of these things as we are sure that there is a sun and a moon and an earth. Christmas is not primarily a happy holiday to us. It is not really a season of good cheer. It's history. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. God the Son came into the world as a human being in order to accomplish our salvation. It's stupendous in its implications. One's posture toward this event, the events that we just had described for us in Luke chapter 2, surely must, absolutely must, determine the destiny of every human being and the end and the issue of every human life. Your life, but the life of everyone else you pass on the street or at this time of the year in the mall. How could it be otherwise? Surely if the creator of heaven and earth and maker of every human being in his own image has come into the world to gain salvation for his people. If the living God took to himself a human nature in order to accomplish, to accomplish the salvation of human beings, then obviously there is not some other way of salvation apart from him. There are not, as we are so often told, many ways to God and heaven. That's what the appearance of the angels to the shepherds, heralds to all mankind. Here is the secret of life. Here is the hope of eternal life. Here is the way to God. Here and nowhere else. In Luke 2, we have this exquisitely beautiful account of the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus Christ. If you read the commentaries on this passage, time and again you'll hear Luke's narrative of the birth of the Savior described as exquisite or charming or beautiful in its simplicity, and it is. No wonder it has so long engaged the imagination of the world. No wonder such great music 
Hymns and carols have been written with this single story as their theme. No wonder even in a secular age such as ours, a great many utterly irreligious people love to celebrate what is unmistakably a profoundly religious holiday. No wonder that in most churches, the one play or pageant performed throughout the year is the story of Christ's birth. No wonder that so many of the world's greatest artists have bent their genius to capturing these events on canvas or in a musical score. What a story. We have a young couple, pure and simple in faith and love, traveling in the last stages of her pregnancy, unmarried, a virgin mother having to deliver her baby boy, who is no one less than the king of kings incognito. Deliver him in the most humble and adverse conditions because there was no room for them in more comfortable quarters. Imagine that, the king of kings and lord of lords in the barn or the cave while these other people take the rooms in the inn. The grandest of all secrets steals upon the world with virtually no one taking notice. And then we have still more wonderfully, first a single angel and then a great choir of angels appearing to a group of shepherds in a pastoral setting outside the town. A great story, beautifully and charmingly told. But it's not the beauty that is most important. It can't help but be beautiful. What matters is the history. If this is true, if this happened as the Scripture says, then your life, anyone's life, must be lived in keeping with these facts. If you live in this world ignoring the fact that God the Son was born of a virgin, came into the world to save those who would believe in Him, what will you say? What could you possibly say to God? He provided salvation at the cost of the humiliation and suffering of His Son. How will you explain that indifference to that immeasurably great gift and sacrifice? What could you possibly say in your defense? Couldn't say you didn't know the story. Hardly anybody in the world can say that any longer. All you could possibly say was that you didn't believe it was true. You thought it was all a myth. You paid no attention because the biblical narrative did not persuade you. You didn't believe that the angels really appeared to the shepherds and really sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. You'll have to say to God, I thought it was all a myth. Joseph Campbell told me that there were lots of such stories circulating in the ancient world. And none of them was true in the ordinary sense of the word. They were simply all efforts on man's part to express his quest for deeper, higher things. The Christmas story is that kind of story, a lovely legend akin to those many other such stories which cultures preserve because they embody lessons or principles precious to their people. Well, no, that's not so. Very interesting. Hardly anybody thinks it's so anymore. There's no story like this in the ancient world. Nobody's come up with one that's remotely like this. This is an account 
embedded in human history. We know who the king of the principality was. We know who the emperor was. We know who the governor of the Roman province was at the time. And what follows in the rest of the gospel history is the same. Christ's life, ministry, death, and resurrection are remarkable, but it's clearly history in the ordinary sense of the word. You may disbelieve it, but you cannot disbelieve it on the assumption that it is written as if it were a myth or a legend. It is precisely what happened and what had to happen if our sin and guilt were to be taken away and we were to be restored to fellowship with a holy God. It's remarkable to be sure. Nothing like this had ever happened before or would ever happen again. No one doubts that. But it did happen. I read this past week that Antony Flew, of all people, the well-known British philosopher who has been probably the most public academic atheist in the world over the last generation, has gone into print admitting that there must be a God. He's not a Christian, to be sure, not yet. He doesn't believe in the God revealed in Christ and in the pages of Holy Scripture. He doesn't want to believe in that God. But his confident atheism, maintained for so many years, has crumbled before the brute facts of nature. He accepts that efforts to explain reality with God have proved and must prove a failure. Perhaps he will soon recognize that there are other conclusions to draw. That if there is a creator, then surely this world being what it is, there is as well a savior. And if a savior, he must be Jesus Christ the God-man. And if God dwells in this universe, and if He has made human beings in His own image, there must be a heaven, a place of eternal life. And the way for human beings to go there must have been revealed. So it has been for countless others regarding the Christmas history over the ages. They thought little about it. They sang the carols and they enjoyed the season, but it made no impact on their life and living. They didn't live because of Christmas. Their lives weren't shaped by the Christmas history. And then suddenly God showed himself to them, as he did to the angels. And they realized in an instant, that this history that lies beneath Christmas is not simply a charming story. It's the meaning of human life, and it's the turning point of human destiny. Do you wish to know whether God's favor rests upon you? Do you want to know if when the angels sang their gloria to the shepherds, they were bringing good news to you? Do you want to know if all of these events took place that you might know God and live forever in His love? Well, do you want to know if God is pleased with you? Well, there is a way to know this. A sure and certain way. 
Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Confess Him the Lord and Savior that He is. Give thanks to God for the gift of His Son. Follow Him. Do what the shepherds did and praise God for what transpired that long ago night. The baby who was once laid in a manger is now in glory in heaven, but He makes His presence known to human beings still today by His Holy Spirit. We Christians in some ways would rather have unbelieving Boeing workers celebrate the winter solstice than have a Christmas party. There are problems with that, of course. There is an unbecoming hypocrisy in that political correctness, to be sure. But it is a witness born to the fact that Christmas divides. There is this in that history that must separate people because there is something mighty and terrible and wonderful here. It is not banal. It's not merely cheery sentiment and good feeling. It's the meaning of life. It's the hope of eternal life. It is as surely a message of judgment for those who will not believe as it is a message of salvation for those who will. And we Christians are the very last people in the world who would ever want that to be forgotten. We want unbelievers to take Christmas seriously. And if that means they refuse to utter the word in public, so be it. They are, however unwittingly, paying our holiday the respect it deserves. We would much rather people know that they must believe this history and must confess Christ, Lord and Savior, to live forever. We would much rather people know that than to have manger scenes in city parks. The French are right. Christmas is an inescapably Christian holiday. It's about Jesus Christ, God the Son, born as a human being in the womb of His virgin mother. It is all about salvation and how salvation and only how salvation can be obtained. They're right about this also. It's no small thing to believe that. It has consequences. You can't be the same person or live the same life or relate to people in the same way if you believe this. Amen.